The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert, and today we're going to be talking about museums in a time of change, uh, which has been certainly a theme in the past months with several of our guests. Some people call this the age of digital technology. Some people are even calling this the age of disruption. And so many of us have been thinking about where do museums fit in this, uh, this age and time And, you know, um, as I was uh, getting to know our guest today, it reminds me of the old um, saying that, you know, it's all fun and games. Uh, It's all fun and games at the museum conference until somebody mentions that museums really have a responsibility to take a stand on social issues. And then all sorts of people start talking, uh, backing away from from the speaker at the microphone. Uh, It's a very interesting phenomenon and one that is not uh, surprising to our guest today, uh, uh, Robert Jaynes. Robert Jaynes is the Editor-in-Chief of Museum Management and Curatorship. He's a visiting uh, research fellow at the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, and he's an adjunct professor of archaeology at the University of Calgary. He is also, many of you probably know him, as the former president and CEO of the Glenbow Museum, and he is uh, publishing uh, very many, uh, often, and many, many good uh, uh, books and articles, and certainly in a profession where there is quite a paucity of uh, good articles that are published for all of us to read. Um, Bob Jaynes is really making a huge contribution, and we're going to be talking about uh, many of his thoughts and ideas, and, and um, I am sure you're going to want to read all of his books, at, including Looking Reality in the Eye, Museums and Social Responsibility, Museums in a Troubled World, and Museums and the Paradox of Change. Bob, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you very much, Carol, and thanks for that very generous introduction. 
Oh, my pleasure. I'm so thrilled. We're going to have a great hour together. Now, Bob, before we get started, I gave just the tiniest hint of your uh, resume and your career trajectory. And could you maybe give us, in your words, sort of how you saw your career unfold, and particularly those uh, ideas or experiences that have really shaped your museum thoughts and practices? That'd be a pleasure. I'm not sure how far back to go, but my museum career actually began a long time ago. I was a collector as a child, and that makes me think, or makes me wonder whether there's a curatorial gene somewhere. But I collected lead soldiers and natural history specimens and things like that. And my prize object, I recall, was a whale vertebra, and I used to use it as a stool. And it was quite a curious item for all my neighborhood friends. I also spent a lot of time outdoors growing up, canoeing, camping in wilderness areas. And I think that all of these things led to my interest in anthropology initially, and then archaeology, and ultimately to museums. And when I think about my museum experiences, one of my most formative experiences was the six months that my wife Priscilla and I spent living with a band of subarctic hunters near the Arctic Circle in Canada's Northwest Territories. Uh, This band was a First Nations group known as the Dene, they're Athabascan language speakers. And this experience was at the beginning of my career as a graduate student in archaeology, and in retrospect, it was a transformative experience. And that's because the personal and social values of these hunters, there were about 40 people in this group, five families, stressed individual autonomy, egalitarianism, decision-making by consensus, and limitations on the exercise of power and authority. And they were also amazingly generous and humble people. And I just gained a profound respect for their way of life, their worldviews, their values, and their competencies, because here they were, uh, 5,000 years later, still living in one of the most severe environments in the world. So I, I fell in love with the Northwest Territories and the indigenous peoples up there, and this led to my becoming the founding director of the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Center in Yellowknife Northwest Territories. And that was the first professional museum in this vast wilderness, which was really one-third of the landmass of Canada. And I understand, too, that it was probably one of the first environmentally controlled professional facilities in the entire circumpolar world. Now, when I applied for this job, just finishing my Ph.D. in archaeology, I had no museum experience whatsoever, but uh, they took a chance on me, and I've been working in museums ever since. And I've also continued my involvement with indigenous people since that time, most recently with the Blackfoot. So, uh, shall I carry on? Yes, go go right ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, while many of us have entered the museum world from a, a different academic uh, uh, bent, you also, uh, I, I wouldn't shortchange yourself as, uh, you know, not because you have continued your education and professional development uh, to the nth degree, I would say. Well, well uh, that's an interesting observation, Carolyn. We'll talk more about that later, I think. So after working for 14 years in northern Canada, I had another important museum experience that really shaped my practice as well, and that was when I became the CEO of the Glenbow Museum Art Gallery, Library, and Archives, which is one of the ten largest museums in Canada. And it was in serious financial trouble when I became the executive director and then the CEO, but this is unbeknownst to me. 
So I spent the next 10 years engaged in a variety of organizational change activities, much of which I've written about in the three editions of my book, Museums and the Paradox of Change, and you kindly mentioned that in your introduction. So living in the North, working in the North among Indigenous peoples, working at Glenbow are important experiences, but they're really a lot more because I've had a wonderful opportunity to learn about museums from a variety of different perspectives because I've been a CEO, I've been a chief curator, author, editor, consultant, teacher, archaeologist, board member, volunteer, and philanthropist. And I'm grateful for all these opportunities because one of the best things, and I know you know this very well about museums, is you learn something every single day. So it's really been a privilege, and I'm grateful for those opportunities. Oh, well, thank you for that wonderful uh, uh, sort of travel log through your through your uh, career, and, and I, uh, I'm envious of uh, some of your experiences, particularly having an opportunity to spend a significant period of time with a, with a wonderful culture, as, as you described, uh, those um, uh, individuals that lived in the circumpolar north. I know we had uh, Julie Decker on a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, uh, the Alaska, uh, the Anchorage Museum, and she uh-huh. too was identifying some of the very unique aspects of individuals that live up in the circumpolar north. Yeah, it sounds similar. as if you were shaped by similar experiences. Indeed, yeah, I mean, that's a good comparison because it's a very similar environment in many ways, culturally and ecologically. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of your more recent books, which is Museums in a Troubled World. And, uh, you know, the book suggests that museums have actually brought many of their problems upon themselves. Uh, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I appreciate your question about why did I write the book, because it's a timely question. I've, I've just learned from my publisher, Routledge, in Oxford, that they want to do a volume of my selected museum writings over the past 20, 32 years. So this has really forced me to sit down and think about, well, what have I written, why have I written, and can I organize it in any kind of coherent way? Uh, I mentioned I began my career in the North, and um, there I really had to challenge museum orthodoxy and practice, because a lot of professional practice just didn't work in that remote and isolated region. For example, you know, the bulk of museum people believe, well, if you want to take care of objects, you have to have environmentally uh, controlled conditions, professional registrars and everything. That simply wasn't conceivable in these remote northern communities. So many of these professional standards were essentially irrelevant, yet the purpose and role of a museum was still important. So I had to wrestle with those paradoxes. And then when I arrived at Glenbow, I was forced to confront another set of traditional assumptions, and they really had to do with the method and theory and process of organizational change. And I found the museum literature to be almost entirely lacking with respect to those things. And the management literature from the private sector I found to be of little value. So we ended up in many ways developing a lot of our own approaches to organizational change and management at Glenbow. So all of these experiences, which spanned 26 years, really gave me an intimate glimpse of the true value of museums as key civic and intellectual resources as well as understanding the obstacles and limitations that I think limit the fulfillment of the museum's potential. Uh, 
So I guess to answer your question, I wrote the book because it became clear to me that museums as social institutions have roles and responsibilities that go far beyond education and entertainment. And all the other sort of internal museum agendas that we're always concerned with, you know, museum shops, the restaurants, the collections, the exhibitions, I feel that they have a much greater role. But it, it took me about 26 years to discover that. I think that uh, are there, well, one of the things, uh, there are many things here in, in your answer that I found interesting. One, uh, of course, was that uh, you looked around within the uh, museum literature at the time and couldn't find very much written about organizational change and and I I can certainly attest that uh, that was true. I think there is more literature coming out now. Uh, you I think are are a major driver in that uh, in that arena. But also that when you looked at uh, organizational management in the for-profit sector, in the corporate sector, you didn't find anything that really, really fit. Uh, I, I often find that museums have a tendency to find someone else's paradigm or model and then not only try it on for size, but cozy up and live in it uh, without really understanding some of the implicit assumptions that have been made when they take on somebody else's model. That's a brilliant explanation of precisely what the problem is. I mean, for for decades, if not centuries, I think museums have uncritically adopted a lot of this uh, stuff from the corporate world. And as you say, they haven't assessed the fit, either short-term or long-term. So that's very well put, and I agree completely. And the other thing about that really bothered me is that increasingly, you know, at least in the last decade, where a lot of these global issues have come to the fore, you know, ranging from climate change and social justice. When you read books outside the museum field, museums are rarely, if ever even mentioned, as important social institutions in these discussions. And that's bothered me a lot. Why aren't they on the radar of other agencies and uh, organizations in our society? So I really wanted to get our colleagues to start thinking about the bigger picture their privileged role in society, and their social responsibilities as a result. That's, that's very interesting, too, uh, just to uh, sort of divert a little bit. Why do you think that that is, that museums are our small little industry? And, of course, when we talk about museums or the way I use the term museums, I talk about a broad range of cultural organizations from science centers, uh, even uh, maybe federal agencies like national parks, as well as art museums and history museums and historic sites. I take the, the word very broadly. And I'm just curious, why do you think that even after all of these years, uh, museums aren't on anybody else's radar? Well, first of all, I agree with your inclusive definition, and I use that one, too, in the same manner that it includes all of our sister institutions involved with the natural and cultural world. Um, I think there are a number of things. Um, the first is that museums have a very long business plan, you know, especially when it comes to their collections. I always told the board of directors at Glenbow that we had a 500-year commitment to collections care. So and we had a lot of business executives on our board, you know, and they have sort of interest in quarterly results, and they would always kind of laugh unknowingly or knowingly when I would talk about the 500-year business plan for our collection. But that perspective of 500 years doesn't really create a sense of urgency. So I think that's been one factor. 
I think museums have also remained on the sidelines of society. And I, I noted something that you said earlier. You said they remain above the fray. And that's exactly right. And, and with minimal attention paid to them, and hence little or no public accountability. Um, so that, I think that's a second factor, sort of sitting on the sidelines, although I think this sitting on the sidelines is beginning to change with a vengeance. And I hope we can talk a bit about that later. Um, and I think both these things, the long business plan, sitting on the sidelines, have created a sense of entitlement among museum workers. So they think, just leave us alone, give us the money, and we know what to do. And then I guess another final factor I'd mention is the uh, current tyranny of the marketplace, with so many museums and science centers being driven by revenues and attendance expectations, really at the expense of their core purpose and values. Now, business literacy is really important, but business literacy is about methods and process, not values and purpose. And I think many museums have lost their way as a result of the marketplace, and they've confused business literacy with their values and purposes. That is uh, very, very well put. Uh, I have uh, uh, written about that phenomena as the uh, adopting the entertainment model. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when uh, when people through the door become your your primary measure, well, Bob, we have so much to talk about. But before we leap into another uh, juicy topic, we are going to have to take a short break. And when we come back, there will be more discussion with Bob Jaynes. Remember, you can reach me at uh, carol.bossert at verizon.net. Anytime you have an idea, have an issue that you think we should be talking about on the show. Uh, So uh, do keep in touch. I enjoy hearing your comments and your thoughts. They are really what is building this show uh, for all of us. So we will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum life american heroes network is a program for and about our american veteran heroes and their families join host gary ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today I'm here with with Bob Janes. And we've been talking about some of the challenges facing museums today, possibly some that they've brought on on themselves, uh, and and others just uh, trying to figure out how they are relevant and can move forward in this very changing world. We were talking, Bob, a little bit about your your book, Museums in a, a Troubled World, before we went on break. Did you want to share anything more about that 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 uh, particular book and and how it uh, what its final uh, recommendation to museums is? Well, I, I would just make one more comment on that, Carolyn. It has to do with one of your earlier guests uh, this fall, Bill Booth. Uh, I listened to that program, and he was crystal clear about the importance of science centers, and I would include museums and all other in- sister institutions in here. The importance of them asking their communities what their aspirations are and to listen to your community, not just to yourself as museum people. And I couldn't agree more. And that really lies at the heart of museums in a troubled world, this idea of becoming mindful, of looking outward, of asking your community what they care about. Because I think that this awareness of your community's concerns and aspirations will inevitably lead to more socially responsible museum work. Because relevance is really no longer about the museum's internal agenda, but your community's agenda. So I just wanted to make that point, because I really enjoyed your interview with Bill Booth. Oh, yes. I, I thought he and, and Kristen said it so very, very clearly, and particularly focusing on science centers who, for whatever reason in their history, uh, have swallowed the, uh, what I, you know, what we're ta- talking about is sort of the entertainment model mm-hmm. uh, almost wholeheartedly and, and often to their detriment. Uh, but I think that you put it very, very well that there is market, but then there is mission and vision and uh, uh, we can use the tools of the marketplace to act responsibly, but we actually have a much greater responsibility in the social arena. That's exactly right. Those tools that you refer to are means to the end, not the end in themselves. You know, one of the things I found very, very interesting, and in fact, this is how I uh, I. I found you, um, uh, is that you wrote a blog for the Center for the Future of Museums. Uh, now, just uh, many listeners will know that the, uh, uh, the Center for the Future of Museums sits uh, within the American Alliance of Museums, and, next, and they have an annual conference, and next year's annual conference has a theme, and it is all about the social responsibility of museums. So clearly, AAM... Uh, believes that there there's enough work 
going on out in our community that we can manage to have presentations for a three or four day conference. But I found it really, really interesting, Bob. You have a wonderful article there and talking about that museums need to become activists and, as you say, just becoming more social institutions. And I was really surprised at some of the comments uh, that you uh, elicited. Uh, you responded to them very elegantly, uh, but uh, but I, I was really surprised. There there were a number of people that took exception to your uh, your suggestions. I can you give us some some thoughts and some insights as to you know were you surprised? Um, not really, and I was. Uh... I was interested when you gave the introduction about, uh, you know, somebody like me giving a speech and then people having sort of shy away from you or not come up to you. I've had that, ex- that experience quite often. And really, I wasn't surprised about the reaction on the CFM blog either. And I guess that's why I continued to do this work. And I'm not going to give up. Um, what bothers me most about this, though, is that this self-absorbed museum behavior doesn't appear to be the property of age. You know, you, you might think that this intransigence would be the purview of aging baby boomers who are in positions of power and holding on to their jobs or soon to retire, but that doesn't seem to be the case in my experience. I find that younger museum workers can be just as entrenched and unimaginative um, in this uh, sense of entitlement as the old fogies can be. Um, at the same time, though, I do regularly hear from young museum workers that they're constrained by their museum directors and other senior people in their organizations who will not listen or change. And these senior people may have 25 years of experience, but as I said before, it appears to be the same year repeated 25 times. In other words, there's not a lot of learning going on. <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm laughing just way too much. Um, Let's uh, let's get uh, perhaps maybe uh, do a couple of more definitions because sometimes I think that word activist uh, is very freighted. We use the word freighted here in Washington D.C. It's a bureaucratic term, uh, meaning that that something has uh, a word has taken on more meaning than and has more weight than perhaps it should have. Yeah. And and I often think that that word activist uh, some perhaps uh, uh, gives everyone the impression of um, uh, people who are uh, out there. Waving, uh, you know, whether it's a placard or a flag, or perhaps they're an animal activist that has, you know, taken it upon themselves to release uh, animals into the wild, or some other really strong act of civil disobedience that, in in this. Perhaps our generation, you know, we were used to it because of, of, you know, we demonstrated for the war and we demonstrated for women's rights and for uh, uh, black rights and and many things. And perhaps younger, uh, our our younger colleagues are not so comfortable with that word. Yeah. And the vision of somebody lying in front of a bulldozer or something like that. Right, right, yeah. right. Saving, saving trees. Now, I, I happen to think all of those things have a, a place in our society, and I will certainly 
uh, encourage people who feel so strongly about things to take it to extremes sometimes as long as, as uh, no one is injured or, or, uh, or hurt, either mentally or physically. But So how do you dis- define activism? Well, I certainly agree that what you've mentioned are all good definitions, but I guess in this context I could put a little finer point on it. And I, and I like to call it intellectual activism, and those are just fancy words for activities that, uh, museum activities that do not necessarily create new knowledge, but they make existing knowledge more accessible, understandable, and understandable and useful to others. And, um, uh, let me give you an example of this. We already know what one of the most vexing issues is these days, and that's climate change. And I've read that uh, the public debate around climate change in the United States is really no longer about science, but it's about values, it's about culture and ideology. So climate change, according to some people, has now become part of the so-called culture wars in the U.S., along with other issues like abortion and evolution. And I think this is also true in Canada. So what we really need is a thoughtful dialogue on all the technical and social dimensions of climate change. And I see this as a form of intellectual activism because museums are grounded in a sense of place, they're committed to stewardship, and they're nearly universally respected in society. And I think that they can readily serve as the bridge between science and the public interest around climate change by initiating and hosting a genuine dialogue. And that's activism in the best sense of the world, word, and I think it's particularly suited to museums because there really aren't any other societal institutions with the credibility to do this. I mean, corporations aren't going to do it, and government hasn't risen to the challenge yet. So there's a vacuum there of intellectual activism being uh, awaiting uh, the presence of museums. I think that's a perfect example, Bob, because as you you say, climate change is not uh, a, 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 a mono uh, topic at all. It no. uh, it cuts across so many aspects of uh, society, uh, belief systems, cultural systems, uh, uh, all sorts of, of structures in really how we as human beings uh, see ourselves in relationship to the rest of the world. I mean, it cuts really to the core. Uh, yet I know of very few museums uh, who have even touched the subject, and when they do, uh, they say, well, we're only giving facts. Yeah, yeah. When, as you say, climate change is totally charged with our emotions, too, and we need to have this discussion. We have to open up this dialogue and get this big issue onto the table. And museums are an ideal forum to do that. And it's a bit risky, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I have heard uh, other other people, and even people on this show, uh, say, well, one of the reasons that uh, museums feel constrained to talk about these more charged topics is, is because of their boards. You know, people on their boards may work for certain co- corporations or certain agencies that that feel uncomfortable when the control is removed mm-hmm. uh, from a topic and everyone's voice can be heard. Do you think that's a fair uh, argument? No, I don't at all. I think it's really fuzzy thinking. And this is this notion that many museums claim of being authoritatively neutral. 
that somehow they have to remain above the fray. But I would argue that by maintaining the status quo the way it exists today with climate change and other vexing issues, that you're already making a value judgment by endorsing the status quo. So to think that you're value-free because you claim neutrality is fuzzy thinking. It doesn't exist. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And as an exhibit developer for more than 20 years, uh, being an exhibit developer and choosing uh, what objects to put on display and what images and what words to use and, and how the lighting should be, all of those choices are just as, uh, you know, if you choose one thing, you can't choose another thing. Yeah. Uh, so you can never, pres- uh, it's like an author. Uh, you know, authors uh, select certain things and uh, uh, make certain decisions to support a thesis or a theme or an idea, and, and that's that's what uh, what what museums do as well. I, I often wonder if part of it is because uh, we've sort of become in, in uh, anesthetized about the importance of developing uh, exhibits. Uh, that that uh, we put them on uh, and we get them done and they're beautiful and they're lovely and the type is not misspelled, but uh, the gra- the gravity of what uh, what we've really done is sometimes uh, uh, we don't really think about so much. That, that's a very important point, and I really liked your comparison with authorship, with writing a book, say because. You don't find a whole lot of anonymous books, but I would say the vast bulk of museum exhibitions are anonymous. Nobody claims any responsibility for having done the research, for having produced what the visitor sees. It's as if there's this sort of omniscient authority that spoke with no attribution. doesn't make any sense. Museums should stand behind their uh, exhibitions with authorship, explicit authorship. Yes, very, very interesting. Um, I, I'm going to ask you a quick question before we go to break. I'm sort of jumping ahead. Uh, but remember, we were talking earlier uh, uh, about what, how we define museums. You're very, very inclusive of all court, sorts of agencies. And then we were just sort of talking about climate change, which you could argue, uh, I don't think you and I would, but you could argue that it is the purview of science centers. And I'm just wondering, do you think that there is any sort of sliding scale within the kinds of organizations uh, that we call museums on, on sort of in terms of the level of civic engagement that they should be expected to take on? That's a really good question, but I think when I think about it, no, I don't think so. When I refer to museums, as we've discussed, I, we include all of our sister organizations, art galleries, historic homes, zoo, aquarium, and so forth. And I don't see any sliding scale. And, and um, I don't think that any museum or any other related organization should be exempted from being socially responsible and meaningful to their communities. Uh, I mean, each museum, irrespective of size and subject matter, has a unique perspective and unique capabilities. And museums of all sizes and shapes are equally responsible to be attuned and responsive to the interests and aspirations of the people that they serve. Um, And what I think we really need are all these institutions to start providing cultural frameworks that will allow society to identify and explore and challenge the myths, the perceptions, and the misperceptions that threaten all of us. 
I'm thinking particularly of the myth of unlimited economic growth as being essential to our, our well-being. Well, that particular myth is killing the biosphere. And why don't we have museums that provide the cultural frameworks that sort of disentangle these perceptions and misperceptions? And I think in doing so, museums would then serve another important purpose, and that is providing a kind of intellectual self-defense against our culture of consumption, you know, all the sort of corporate malfeasance we see, and the government complicity with big business. We need to be able to challenge that as citizens, that intellectual, with intellectual self-defense. And I see museums as a prime vehicle for doing that. Wow. Uh, I'm just going to let that, those words sink in uh, to all of our listeners for a moment. Those are very, very powerful words, Bob. Thank you for sharing, sharing them. They really are sort of a manifesto for, uh, for museums finding their own identity and claiming it. Well put. We are going to have to take another very brief break, and when we come back, uh, Bob and I are going to talk about uh, some of the uh, some of the attributes of, of why change is so difficult for our institutions. So stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. A nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune in to Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here with Bob Janes, and we're talking about the museum's role, not only a role, but a responsibility uh, to be to create cultural frameworks uh, for society to come together and think about the issues, uh, the burning issues of, of our time. And more importantly, uh, just understanding that many of our sister institutions either don't want to hear that or are moving in a completely different direction. And, and I sort of... I. I will probably spend my entire career wondering why. Uh, but, Bob, before we, I want to hear why you think that is. But uh, before I do that, one, uh, because you have spent so much of your career working in uh, Canadian museums, I'm just wondering is there any difference between Canadian institutions and U.S. institutions, perhaps in the way their funding comes to them, uh, that would lead any any of our listeners today to feel, oh yeah, well, you know, Bob's making all of these pronouncements about what museums should do, but that only works in Canada. Mm. Well, you know, overall, I really don't think that Canadian and American museums are uh, any different when it comes to the sort of myopia or the short-sightedness that we've been talking about today. And it's true that U.S. museums rely more on private funding, while Canadian museums get a comparatively larger portion of public or government money, but I can say that that government money in Canada is shrinking daily. And I read recently that uh, the bulk of Canadian museums are at least about two-thirds economically self-sufficient. So they've really embraced this notion of earned revenues with a vengeance. So I think this notion that somehow we're the ward of the state up here and down there it's all entrepreneurial is becoming less and less true on a monthly basis almost. Um, no, I'm, I, I, that's very interesting, and I'm glad you, uh, you, you pointed that out. I think we do have that, uh, that myth, let's use that word, word that our, our Canadian sisters and brothers have a much easier time at it because they just get it from the government. Yeah, and that's not necessarily true, but, but it's also there's a distinctive trait of the U.S. museum community, too, and that's this, the large endowments that many of you have. We don't have this sort of array of large endowments that characterizes the American museum community, and that really says a lot about American private philanthropy, and I would say that that's much more sophisticated in the U.S. than it is in Canada at this point in time, but, but tax laws are being reformed up here, and there's an effort to try and get more of that developing. But nonetheless, the bulk of Canadian museums, I don't think, are any more or less progressive than American museums. And up here, uh, many are enslaved by marketplace thinking. And far too many of them are concerned with, you know, the sort of tyranny of expertise or their professionalism. They're concerned with entertainment and short-term popularity, again, at the expense of their missions and values. Interesting, yes. And so let's, in this last segment, just hit a few things on on the head. Uh, 
it's no it's no secret uh and you've just confirmed it that uh no matter what the museum is they certainly have to be making enough money to pay the staff keep the lights on uh heat the building uh care for the collections and the gift shop and the food service and uh you know maybe selling publications only goes so far and so you know a museum could justify i well I have heard museum directors say, well, to make sure that I can ma- do all the things I need to do and uh, make sure that I'm running a, uh, uh, uh economically uh, viable organization, I have to bring in popular exhibits, uh, um, you know, Angry Birds Do Science, uh, whatever it seems to be, because that's what brings the people in. If I bring in a, a hard-hitting discussion about climate change, you know, I'll hear, uh, all I'll hear is crickets in the, uh, uh, in the galleries. So how do we balance those, those, those two very important uh, items? Well, I think it begins with mission. And I think that, uh, you know, the vast majority of museum mission statements don't ask the question, why? I mean, even in this day and age, you see that the preponderance is about how. You know, we, we collect, we exhibit, we interpret. But I would argue that those are processes. Those are means to the end. They're the how. They're not the what or the why or the who. And very few museums ask, why are we doing what we're doing? And for whom we're doing it. So it's true. I mean, if, if all you care about, care about is, is uh, driving up your earned revenues, then blockbusters, well, they may or may not help. I mean, a lot of them fail as well. But I understand that logic if you haven't asked yourself why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, what is your more sort of ultimate purpose here? So it begins and, with mission. Yeah. And I would, would uh, from our conversation today, I would uh, assume that, that you would answer the why by saying, because we have a social responsibility, we are a unique type of institution. No one else can fulfill this societal role. That's, that's exactly right. But then if you don't ask the word why, there's also, in addition to not asking that question, there are, there are a lot of other what I call self-inflicted challenges that museum workers uh, produce themselves, which make it difficult for them to engage in societal issues. And one of these we've already touched on, and that's this notion of neutrality, you know, the widely held belief among museum boards and staff that they have to protect their neutrality and remain apolitical because they might fall prey to bias or trendiness in special interest groups. Um, Or that uh, you cannot risk doing anything because of a sponsor or supporter. But, you know, this has become quite complicated now because we have this whole notion uh, on the horizon of uh, the ethics of dirty money. Um, there's a consortium that's developed in New York City over the past half a year called Not an Alternative, and they've started the New Natural History Museum. And this is a consortium of artists, climate scientists, and museum anthropologists who are now challenging the Science and Natural History Museums that are taking money from climate change deniers, such as the Koch brothers. So this, this not an alternative is targeted the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History, who receive large amounts of money from climate change deniers for exhibitions. And this group is urging science museums to, review, to refuse funding from those who deny climate change for the simple fact that these museums are knowledge-based and science-based. 
So this notion of claiming neutrality may just uh, escape from the hands of museum governors because now it's in the hands of the public. It's coming from outside the museum community. I I have been following <coughs> not <coughs> the not an alternative uh quite avidly. I think that they are a fascinating case study. They really uh, are. Because of who they are and the fact that they have come together uh, to to essentially act like a museum mm-hmm. uh, as an educational uh, institution, as a, as as you say, sort of a as an ethical peaker, uh, an intellectual activist, an intellectual activist. There you go. Yeah. And uh, so I th- I think one of the uh, perhaps effects of living in this age of disruption is that if museums don't claim their authority, someone else will. That's, that's exactly right. You know, and, and that's the same thing that's happened. It's already happened in the past, and a good example would be performance measures, where we had the longest opportunity and time to develop qualitative performance measures, which, at least in Canada, and I'm pretty sure in the United States, museum practitioners essentially avoided or ignored. So what's happened then, boards of directors, governments, agencies, foundations, have more or less imposed quantitative performance measures on museums. And as a result, you know, we have this sort of love affair with the marketplace. Everything is about numbers. Well, we fail to develop qualitative performance measures ourselves. In fact, most museums now cannot demonstrate or account for their public value. And we still have that problem. Uh, yes, I I think uh, I think you're right. I think there there are some very good people, good thinkers out there. Mary Ellen Munley comes to mind. Yes, uh, I, John I Jacobson think, too. Yeah. Yes, yes. Looking looking at uh, at some of these other uh, attributes. So, um, but it's 2014. The, we should have done this 30 years ago. Yes, yes, we should have. But as I like to say. Now we know, and now we know better. Uh, <laughs> being being depressed and uh, being negative and feeling guilty are not good self motivators. Exactly uh, so, right. So, so, uh, so, how can we? You know, uh, this show is heard by museum professionals all over the world. Uh, I am proud to say. So, what can we say? Uh, to these museum professionals who are listening, who are saying, you know, I really want to do a little bit more. I really want to be changing my organization. How do they start? What are the questions that they need to be asking themselves and those around them? Well, probably a really big question, and it would be just fun to explore, is the question, if museums didn't exist, would we reinvent them? And if we did reinvent them, what would they look like? And then a sub-question under the reinvention would be, what would be the role of the public or publics in the reinvented museum? I think it would behoove um, all museums to just spend, you know, a couple hours or half a day with their board and staff asking them a question like that. Uh, another question that I have always is, why do we believe that museums may abstain from addressing societal needs and aspirations and thus be absolved of greater accountability especially at this time of extraordinary societal upheaval with all these issues that we've talked about today, climate change, social justice, etc. So that's another question. Um, a fourth one would be, what is your museum's higher calling? 
Meaning, what is the public value you wish to contribute to your community and the world? And a final question would be, when you think about your own museum, where does it sit on the continuum from being internally focused to externally mindful? And I think any of those five questions would start get would would get people to, to be thinking in their in, in a different direction. Those are great, uh, great questions, and I think the other one that that I would uh, perhaps add to that is um, when looking at. When looking at for the answers to these questions, make sure that you answer them at least twelve times because uh-huh. I find that the first ten ten answers are going to be pretty pat. You know, uh-huh. why do you exist? Because we have wonderful collections. Well, why is that? Why do you have wonderful collections? Why collect anything? Uh, and eventually, you do get down to some some very uh, Im- important discussions. I think those of us who love museums and can talk about museums have, up until this point in, uh, in, in museum history, been of a relatively elite class. Uh, yeah. we've, we've had lots of opportunities. I know I have in my life to be able to go to, go to university and pursue a graduate career and, and, uh, continue with, with my education and my intellectual interests. And sometimes, uh, we forget that, uh, there are other people like like there uh, like us out there, but we need to communicate with them. Uh, I, I always like to say we're sort of a niche market museums. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does not mean that we should abdicate responsibility from other communities uh, in our. Uh, in our midst and uh, in, invite them, whether no matter where they sit within society. But I think we we often get a little too insular and think everybody knows the answers to these questions. That's a very good point. And and back to what you said earlier, I really like that notion of drilling down twelve times and really peel the onion to get down to really what's happening, the basis of those questions. That's a, that's an important, very important point of yours. And yes, uh, again, uh, I think that, um, well, we know, you know, that the bulk of museum visitors are still amongst the most highly educated, economically well-off people in our society. And we really start to need to, 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 to break down those barriers. Yes, and not just giving, them, giving other people a festival or a free day once a year. Precisely. But actually involving people in all of our communities. Uh, I think some of the best museum experiences I've ever had have been in free museums where people of all walks of life uh, can meet. Uh, uh, perhaps they're silent and they're not really conversing, but they're looking at the same work of art uh, together. Uh, that that is a. Uh, I, I think that's a very powerful notion. It is, and and again, museums are one of the most, if not the most, trusted institutions in society. So, what are we going to do with that trust? that will benefit individual and collective well-being? That's the question to be asking, isn't it? Yeah, that's another question for the list. <laughs> yes. 
Well, Bob, uh, this is this has been an absolutely fabulous uh, conversation today, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, reading more of your work. I know that you're going to continue to uh, to put up a, the good fight. Uh, perhaps you'll come south and uh, attend the American Alliance of Museums uh, program this next April, where we're supposed to be talking about these social justice issues. Well, that's an important organization and an important meeting for sure. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to close today's show. Bob, thank you so much uh, for being on the show and giving us such insightful information. Well, the pleasure's mine, Carol. Thank you for being such a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, and we will be back next week with another episode of Museum Life. Uh, Until then, thank you for listening. This is Carol Bossert. I'll see you next week for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 